And so last week we had coffee. We were going to have a normal service and then we got waylaid and we just had coffee, uh, which was fantastic. So that meant that uh, the sermon I was planning to preach last week, I will be sharing with you today. I'm not sure if it's more relevant today than it would have been last week, uh, but that's that's what's going on. I'm going to start. Uh, who's heard the term the dark night of the soul? Like it's kind of overdone in Christianity a little bit. Like it's something that that has been mentioned a million times. Um, the, the term itself was actually coined by a 16th century mystic uh, that we now call St. John of the Cross. Uh, and he wrote heaps of poetry. He was not well received by his peers. They locked him in solitary confinement. And he was there for like, I think like nine months or something. I didn't write down how long, but he was there a long time. And eventually he escaped out of solitary confinement. But whilst he was in solitary confinement, he composed a series of poems including the, a, a poem about the dark night of the soul, which is where we get that term. Uh, so it makes more sense when you think about it being a person seeking God and having a, rev, a mystical revelation of God whilst in solitary confinement, he was having a dark night of the soul. He really truly knew what it was to be alone. Uh, so he escaped out of that environment and he, he then wrote down all of the poems that he had written in his mind whilst locked up. Uh, and then he wrote a series of books kind of unpacking his uh, poetry as well. So he, in, in one of his, uh, this is a translation from Spanish, talking about the dark night of the soul, uh, it says, Into this dark night souls begin to enter when God draws them forth from the state of beginners, which is the state of those that meditate on the spiritual road, and begins to set them in the state of progressives, which is that of those who are already contemplatives. To that end, after passing through it, they may arrive at the state of the perfect, which is that of the divine union of the soul with God. See, the, the dark night of the soul, uh, at least for St. John of the Cross, who coined this term, was the place between our um, kind of our longing and our despair and our place of emptiness or brokenness where we don't feel like we're there yet, our place of immaturity and a beginning place. Uh, the dark night of the soul is what happens before we reach the breakthrough. It's when we reach maturity. It's when we reach the perfect and union with God at the other end. That place of deep questioning and fear and doubt, that's the place that uh, St. John was speaking of. And, and I don't know about you, if you've been in Christendom for any length of time, I think especially if you grew up in the church, you get to a point like somewhere, you know, maybe in your very late teens or your early 20s or somewhere around there where you kind of deconstruct to some extent the what you've been given as a child and then reshape that into something for your own as an adult. And I think that for, for a lot of people, there is a dark night of the soul in the middle of that where they're trying to figure out what is real what is true i know for myself i went through that and there were times where i felt angry or frustrated or even uh, depressed that where my theology uh, just didn't quite add up the things i'd been given weren't delivering uh, and i wasn't feeling you know that ecstatic presence thing and i don't know about you but when you have those ecstatic amazing deep spiritual experiences it makes it easier to believe all the ideas that came with it but then when you have less of those ecstatic emotional experiences, suddenly the stuff that you were believing with it becomes harder to, to understand. So 20 years ago, I can very confidently say I had an answer to everything. And I was right. I was so, so right. 
but I think the, the dark night of the soul forces us to separate the uh, experiences that we had uh, and, and then say, what is actually authentic and real? Because if, if spiritual feelings were simply the way we measured maturity, 20 years ago, like as a teenager, when I was deeply emotionally unstable, I was a spiritual giant. And I felt like that. And that's what I told people who I thought weren't uh, emotional enough. When they didn't have the big emotional experience or when they didn't, you know, cry at every point in church, it's like, you know, someone does the welcoming and I'm like, oh, I'm going to cry about that. And then, you know, someone will take the offering. And I'm like, oh, yes, Lord, I love you. And, I'm, you know, like everything was emotional. And because of that, I felt like a spiritual giant. And then the problem was, is my hormones stabilized. I became more of an adult. All of a sudden, the deeply emotional experiences that I'd associated with my spirituality went around so much. And all of a sudden, my theology didn't make as much sense. And I began uh, what I think was a reasonably long period of a dark night of the soul. See, having deep experiences is beautiful and wonderful and good. I'm not saying that those things are wrong. But what I'm saying is that we need to be able to distinguish between emotional experiences and authentic faith. And the two don't always perfectly line up. We need to make sure we don't create an idol out of the experience and then worship the experience because the fruit of the Spirit is not emotional catharsis any more than the fruit of the Spirit is good theology. You see, there's these two extremes that we like to paint. The people who have really, really good ideas on theology think that the emotional people are crazy. And the emotional people think the people who are only concerned about doctrine, that they're stoic and dead inside. But neither of those things are the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we should have an emotional connection with um, with people and our world and with God, and we should try to have good doctrine. But the fruit of the Spirit is a little bit different to those things. The mark of maturity is not louder prayers or longer choruses or, or uh, more in-depth Bible studies. The mark of maturity is a, is a renewed mind, and I think that that then has to be translated into a greater love and service for the, the little and the least for the poor and for the broken and for the disenfranchised. So I want to read today uh, a section of scripture and teach on a section of scripture where a person, I think, comes out of this dark night of the soul. They're having a moment of revelation. Uh, I'm going to be reading from John 3, the story of Nicodemus, uh, the story that we would all know uh, that the language uh, there is to, that we need to be born again. And uh, so in John 2, We've just had this scene where, uh, where Jesus has gone into the temple courts. He's flipped over the tables. He's made a whip, driven out the animals. Uh, so he's had his little um, you know, public meltdown at the temple. And everybody uh, is talking about this all around the city. And immediately after that, it says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. So that's where the, it picks up. It's the Passover festival. The city is full of people. And Jesus has caused a ruckus. And it says, now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading, but I just want to stop there. This is a very different story of a Pharisee. Like normally, the, the kind of New Testament paints the Pharisees in the worst possible light. Like it doesn't really give them a lot of, um, a lot of, of room. The Pharisees were the bad guys in the story. They are proud, legalistic, angry jerks who throw their righteousness around because they want to look good and they do it at the expense of others. 
That's the picture that we largely get given. But here we have a more relatable, a more kind, a more gentle even picture of a Pharisee. Uh, this, this guy, Nicodemus, is a pretty decent guy. And he comes to Jesus at night. Now, a lot of people say he comes to Jesus uh, at night because he's afraid of people seeing him. But I don't, the more I read this section of Scripture, I don't think that it's because he's afraid. This, the Pharisees met with Jesus all the time. They invited him into his home. They came and did stuff with him. They weren't afraid of Jesus. And the Pharisees probably weren't even upset about Jesus turning over the tables because that was in the temple courts. And the temple was largely run by Sadducees who were kind of like the, the nemesis of the Pharisees. They had very different theological worldviews or very, you know, very different political worldviews. So imagine you can see the tension between left and right, theologically and politically, is between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had that dynamic. So when Jesus goes into the temple courts and he turns the tables over, he's saying to the Sadducees, you guys have turned my house into a house, a den of thieves and robbers instead of a house of prayer. The Pharisees, who are not running the temple, they were the guys in the synagogues and the, and the lay ministers around Israel. They're probably cacking themselves. They think this is great. Jesus is making the Pharisees look dumb. That's oh, right, the Sadducees look dumb. So out of that, we now see Nicodemus saying, maybe I should meet with Jesus. And he's not afraid to meet with Jesus. What I think is going on is that he wants to have a more quiet conversation. He doesn't want the polarized conversation where there's a crowd and where Jesus is drawing black and white illustrations. He wants to have an honest, authentic, quiet conversation with Jesus without the adversarial elements of all of the other stuff that was going on. Nicodemus didn't come to Jesus to try and trick him or trap him or to try and accuse him of anything. He's here. What does it say? It says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. This is a bold claim by Nicodemus. First, he calls him teacher. Now, Jesus is a hick from Galilee who did not get raised in, the, uh, in Jerusalem and he didn't go to the temple and get taught and do all the right things to become a real rabbi. But here Nicodemus is saying to him, I see that you're a rabbi because I've heard what you've taught and I've seen what you've done and God, and not just me, but he says we, there's a group of them that have obviously been watching Jesus and they've said, there is something really different about this guy. And Jesus replies to him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this is, I think, a section of scripture that has been kind of overtaken by certain elements of the church, this idea of being born again. Um, the, the reason uh, that like when it says born again here, we translate again, some, some uh, translations say from above uh, because the word there actually means from above. Uh, so it's saying you need to be born from heaven and not heaven, the detached ethereal plane where God sits on a cloud. But when it says you need to be born from above, it's saying you need to be born from, uh, from God's place from where God is ruling and God has kingship. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the area where God is sovereign. And Jesus is saying, not only do you need to be born normally, you also need to be born into the place where God has full sovereignty. You need to be born from above. Truly, I tell you, you, see, you say that I am from 
that God is with me, and I say to you, you must be born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, Nicodemus is not an idiot. Like this seems like a pretty dumb thing for him to say, but he is not an idiot. Uh, He is a ruler of the Jews, almost certainly a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the the ruling courts um, of of the Jewish people. Uh, He's probably committed a massive portion of the scriptures, if not the entire uh, Torah and Old Testament to memory. He knows everything there is to know about the kingdom of God. He is an expert. He is literally in every conceivable way an expert. He is not simply a confident moron. Now, I know that we, we have a lot of people in leadership today who are confident morons. This is not one of them. Nicodemus is a legitimate theological giant in his, in his day. So he would not be accustomed to being confused in theological conversations. He is the original answers man. He has all of the answers. So what Jesus says to him is very troubling. See, the phrase born again... This is actually something Nicodemus would have heard before. See, they would, the language of being born again was something that they used to say about Gentiles who were proselytes who had become Jews. So they, were, they would say, the, the youngest of, of the Gentiles, when they become a Jew, they are born again. And the sign of being born again is circumcision. And they are born into Israel at that point. So Jesus is saying to him, you need to be born again. It's kind of an insult because... He would be thinking, I am not a Gentile for a start, and I'm definitely, I'm like at the top rung of Judaism here, not at the baby end of it. Why am I being reborn? In the food chain, Nicodemus was at the top. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. See, just as you entered this world uh, through flesh, you must be reborn if you want to enter the kingdom of God. See, one is a, a flesh kingdom, the other is a spiritual kingdom. And see, now this idea of being born of water, there's some confusion as to what this means. Uh, I think normally people just say, oh, he's talking about John's baptism. He's talking about being born, um, you know, you need to be born of water and of the Spirit means you need to be baptized for repentance and then you'll also be baptized in the Spirit. But we are, that's kind of what we infer after the fact. This is when Jesus is still around. People hadn't really been baptized in the Spirit yet. And, you know, like, so the whole idea of being baptized in water is confusing if you try to say it's John's baptism. And the weird kind of awkward thing that theologians actually think it means, uh, when it says you need to be born of water, it's talking about semen. It's talking about the natural birth. It's talking about the physicality. You need to be born once as a human being. And then you need to be born again in the Spirit. Yeah, it's a bit weird, right? Yeah, Ellen disagrees because it's gross. Uh, Sadly, just because something's gross does not mean that it's not true. I don't know. I was there when my babies were born. It was kind of gross and they're still real. Um, It was also very beautiful and wonderful. Uh, Don't want to get in too much trouble there. Uh, I'm going to edit that out later. Uh, You know the other week when we had Bernie run in? and was playing, who's he playing with? With Indy in front of me. I actually, during the week, got feedback from people saying, 
why is that not in the video? We wanted to see that. So even people who were watching the video were distracted by it and wanted to see it more than they wanted to listen to me. So thanks a lot, y'all. Um, yeah, my dog. Being born of the Spirit is different to being born of the flesh. Being born of the Spirit is the regeneration, the rebirth, the renewal of the whole person. Verse 7 says, You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, John um, often writes using words that have multiple meanings, and I'm pretty sure he did it just to screw with us because he thought that was fun. Uh, so the word for spirit, pneuma, in the Greek is the same word they use for wind and it's the same word they use for breath. Because the idea was when someone was alive, they were breathing and when they were dead, their breath was no longer with them. So their spirit departed. Their last breath was their spirit going. So the word for spirit and breath and wind are all the same word. So you can translate this to mean all sorts of different things. It's only in the context of it that we kind of translate it the way we do. So here, though, we see this wordplay expressed. Uh, those who are born of the Spirit, they can't understand those who are, sorry, those who are born uh, of the Spirit, they can't be understood by those who are born of flesh. There is something about being reborn that is just incomprehensible to people who are still born only of flesh. The people born of flesh, they can hear it. They might be able to see the impact of it, but they can't comprehend it. So Nicodemus, he says, how can this be? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. You're the teacher of Israel. You're the, the big kahuna. You are the guy who is meant to get it and you don't. Above all others, Nicodemus should get it. And this is Jesus illustrating the point. He's saying, if you are born of the flesh, you cannot understand the things of the Spirit. And Jesus is talking to him about the things of the Spirit. And Nicodemus is still trying to figure out how to climb back into his mother's womb. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Jesus is like me. And all my boys and all my sisters, we do all this talking, we show you all this stuff and you cannot get it. You and all of the Jews just can't see it. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now there's some... Like Nicodemus, like I said, he's a sharp guy. He's probably able to read between the lines here. Jesus is kind of saying, I've told you, I've given authority about earthly things you didn't get. So I'm not going to tell you about the heavenly things that I know because I was in heaven and then came back to, down to earth and because I'm the son of man. Like he's very, very thinly suggesting drawing a parallel between himself and the mythical person of Jewish antiquity, the son of man. The son of man uh, is, like, uh, is like code language in Judaism for the Messiah. So he is really basically putting it all out on the table there for Nicodemus. And he says, just as Moses, weird story here, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, this is super weird because there's this odd little story in Numbers 21. 
And in the story, the people of Israel are misbehaving as usual. They're complaining. Uh, and God sends a bunch of snakes to bite them to teach them a lesson. Very odd story. And then they get upset that they're getting bitten by snakes. Uh, so they repent and they say, we're very sorry. We don't like the snakes. And, uh, and then God says to Moses, uh, take this bronze statue of a snake, raise it up. And if anyone looks at the statue, they'll be healed. Weird story. So Jesus is saying, just like the statue will be held up and everyone who sees it will be healed, the Son of Man must be lifted up and everyone who believes Him will have eternal life. Jesus is putting it all out there. This is a story that Nicodemus would definitely have been familiar with. So what is the point of this story? If it's not you know, just a, a story so Pentecostal can say, you've got to be, a, you're not real Christian unless you're born again. It's not, you know, you've got to have that experience, maybe praying tongues, whatever. Like, if it's not that, what is actually going on here? You see, because Nicodemus was steeped in religion and tradition uh, that was generations old. He was the, the expert theologian. He studied the Torah. He went to temple. He paid his taxes. He did everything right. He was a wonderful, good man in every possible way. His entire life was dedicated to honoring God. But the rules that he followed, the laws that he followed, the behaviors and habits and traditions that he honored had not set him free. They had, as the scriptures talked about, they had become a stumbling block for him. He was going through the ritual and the routine and it wasn't giving him what he thought it should give him. And then this self-appointed Galilean rabbi, he turns up and Nicodemus looks at him. He says, you haven't done any of the things that I have done. You're in the wrong place. You, you don't have the same upbringing, the same authority, the same platform, the same everything, but God is with you. It's this unbelievable like experience for Nicodemus who spent his entire life living in the dark living in the dark night of the soul where he did everything he could to get out of the dark and then he sees the light of Jesus. God is with him. What a complete shakeup of his world. So he meets with Jesus and, and he says, what is going on? How is it that God is with you and he's not with me? I'm doing everything right. I know that I'm doing everything right. Everyone agrees that I'm doing everything right, but God is not with me. And Jesus says, it's not enough to be born of flesh, to go through the rules, to go through the motions, to do all the commitments and all the honor of tradition and all of the tithing and good stuff and everything. It's not enough. You must be reborn in the kingdom. Jesus was the light in the darkness for Nicodemus. He was what Nicodemus had been longing for his whole life. Jesus embodied what Nicodemus so deeply desired. In Jesus, Nicodemus saw a man who walked with the Father. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You see, his old way of thinking, his old way of living, needed to die. He needed to be born again. He needed to be, have his spiritual eyes opened. There was a, another Pharisee named Saul and, uh, and he persecuted the church and, and he got struck down and, and he became blinded. And then he eventually, he went into the city uh, that God sent him into and a man named Ananias came to him and prayed for him and, and, and like scales fell from his eyes and he saw anew. 
He saw the spiritual kingdom anew. He became born again. See, being born again changes how we see God and it changes how we see ourselves. See, Paul, who, the Saul who became Paul, saw himself as the greatest of all the Pharisees. And then after he'd been born again, he said, I'm the worst of all the sinners. See, and Nicodemus was the, was the, was the ruler of the, of the Pharisees, uh, you know, of his people. And he needed to, to see himself differently as well. There was a time in my faith where it was entirely shaped by my own self-righteousness and the feelings and desires and dreams and ambitions that were inside of me. I had deep insecurities uh, and I, I, I wanted to know what the rules were because if I kept the rules, that made me better than other people. I was somewhat like Nicodemus. I was an answers man. Even as a pastor, like my whole kind of thing was being an answers man, being able to tell you why the Bible was real and right and, and trying to convince and compel and bully people to believe that. But you can't see it unless you're born again. Now, I've come some distance, and I suspect I have a lot further to go yet, but my picture of God has changed. I think that there are parts of me that are renewed. The God I know today is a more loving and more kind and more inclusive and more gracious God than I ever even conceived of as a teenager. And I see things in the Scriptures now that, that eluded me for decades I see things now so very differently, being, being born again. And I am less emotional. I have less uh, cathartic, ecstatic, emotional experiences. I, uh, I occasionally still have them, but my faith is not in the experience. It's in, in Jesus. To be born again is to follow Jesus, uh, his call away from the thinking and behaving of the world and its structures and its rules and its laws, even the ones that we get in the church and being reborn. Now, I, I see God so differently now that there are some people who think I've fallen away. Like there are some people who think I'm a reprobate now, that I am a false teacher or a false prophet or so. I don't know what they think because I used to be so certain about the things that they are still certain about. I used to be so arrogantly cocky about the black and the white and the in and the out and the right and the wrong and the good and the bad. I was so sure and everyone was very comfortable with that. And now they think I've fallen away because God is bigger and kinder and more loving and more gracious and, and more embracing and more real. I suspect that the same thing happened to Nicodemus. As he continued to, to see Jesus' ministry and change and life. And then, you know, Nicodemus tried to defend Jesus. I think he was a, a, actually quite a timid man. He tried to defend Jesus later on and got shot down. But then when all of the other disciples went and hid, at the end when Jesus died, I think Nicodemus is there. He's like, the son of man must be raised up. See, Nicodemus remembered this conversation at the end and Nicodemus was there when Jesus' body was brought down and Nicodemus was there to prepare Jesus' body for the tomb. He was born again. He saw something in Jesus and he said, I want that. And he was reborn. And I suspect that his peer group looked at him and said, you know what, Nicodemus? Uh, the old Nicodemus was more righteous than the new Nicodemus. Nicodemus was born again. 
Being born again was not marked by circumcision and becoming a Jew. It was, it was rather being born again in the Spirit and then displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and forbearance and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You see, against these things, there is no such law. This is what it is to be born again. It's to have the fruit of the Spirit born and grow inside of you. I think that the end of the dark night of the soul uh, for Nicodemus came when he recognized who Jesus was and he said, I need that more than what I've been given. And I just want to encourage anyone who is listening to this here or, or later on that if you are in that place of doubt or confusion or fear where you had certainty and no longer have certainty or you just are confused and you're not sure, look, look at Jesus because God is with him. And know that that dark night ends. That you can be born again. And I don't know when, when, when the sun will rise on your dark night. I don't know when that, that warmth of, of, of the life of Christ will grace your face and, and bring you new life. But I promise you, it's there. And I would encourage you to draw near. Like Nicodemus did, he said, I see that, that this guy that this teacher, that God is with him. Draw near to the people who you see that God is with them. Don't be afraid. I just want to finish with a psalm. And, uh, and, and we'll make that, that, you know, this psalm a prayer. This is a Psalm 13. And verse, uh, what is this? 1 to 6. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, that you have been raised up on a cross, but also raised up in exaltation. I thank you that we can be born again, and that the old systems and ideas that, that haven't delivered on their promises, but that you do. I pray that we would know you and that we would be born of the water and of the Spirit. I pray that you would enlighten us. And that as we are born again and your Spirit resides in us, that it would bear great fruit. Great fruit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.